Hello, and welcome to Finding Frederick, a weekly podcast that explores the history, people, and stories of Frederick, Maryland. I'm your host, Lisa Littlefield, and thanks for joining me in some conversations with friends and history buffs like you and me. Today, I'm taking a short drive to an area deeply associated with the history of Frederick, the Catoctin Furnace Historical Site and the Museum of the Ironworker. For more than 100 years, settlers of the area mined the rich ores found in the foothills and mountains that ring the city. I'll be visiting with historian, archaeologist, and president of the Catoctin Historical Society, Elizabeth Comer, to learn more about the people who founded the area, worked the furnace, and lived out the unique story of Frederick. Elizabeth, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and how you came to be involved in Maryland and Frederick history? Well, I'm, I'm actually from Frederick. wasn't born here, but at the, from the age of four, so I think that qualifies. I grew up near Kriegerstown on a farm, went to school in Thermont, and then Hood College for my undergraduate degree. So while I live in Baltimore now, because of my volunteer work at the Catoctin Furnace Historical Society, I come here frequently, and plus my family, for the most part, still lives in the area. So I'm in Frederick a lot and uh, have a long, a long connection. How did you become a historian? Well, my undergraduate degree is in history, but my, I'm actually an archaeologist. Not that that precludes being a historian at all. It, those go hand in glove when you're a historical archaeologist, um, as I am. I don't remember a time when I wasn't interested in history. When I was a child reading National Geographic. I was fascinated by what I now realize was underwater archaeology, but to a you know four or five-year-old, it's the same thing. And I've just always been interested in history. I grew up on a farm that had a prehistoric site on it. Uh, my father would pick up projectile points and thumbnail scrapers and various aboriginal you know artifacts. The house we grew up in was basically Revolutionary War era, so there was a lot of history. My mother was a historian. Father was very interested in history, so I come by it naturally. So what got you involved with Catoctin Furnace? What is this site? What's uh, unique about it? Well, the Catoctin Furnace connection is, again, going back to family. My parents and uh, my three siblings, we attended Harriet Chapel. It's the historic Episcopal church that's been here since the 1830s, and we knew it was a historic village. My mother actually was very tuned into this early on because she recognized, you know, the value of the 200-year-old-plus, you know, history of the of the furnace. In the early 1970s, in the run-up to the bicentennial, uh, at the same time, the Maryland State Highway Administration was planning a roadway expansion of existing Route 15. That planned roadway expansion was going to come very close to and very adversely impact the uh, Catoctin Furnace ruins uh, and those artifacts that are the items, uh, the structures that are still here, and the archaeological resources, as well as just the whole cultural cultural landscape. So in the 1970s, as this threat loomed over Catoctin Furnace, my parents and three other couples got together and started the Catoctin Furnace Historical Society, 1972-1973. So 
50 years ago. They were sort of taking advantage of this intense interest in the bicentennial, but also as an activist organization, they were trying to ensure that the furnace was preserved and it was not going to be you know, adversely affected or, for that matter, destroyed by the construction of this roadway. The end result of that was the beginning of the Catoctin Furnace Historical Society. My mother wrote a book called, called Faith in the Furnace. It's about the church and then Portrait of an Iron Making Village, which is a history of the village at large. I'm now part of the next generation, along with my siblings and the children of other people who were involved in the ground floor of the Catoctin Furnace Historical Society. So as the next generation, we're trying to carry the torch and keep the organization alive and keep its message out in front of people that this industrial history of Frederick County and the country really is incredibly important, not just because of the things that were produced here, like the shells that were used at the siege of Yorktown and the beautiful Catoctin furnace stoves, but also the workers, and which is why we call our museum the Museum of the Iron Worker, because we tell the story of the workers, and those include enslaved Africans, free African Americans, and then European Americans, European immigrants um, as well. So that's in a nutshell, how I became involved and what my involvement is today. So people do think of Frederick as an agricultural seat, but this is a very different kind of aspect of the history of this area. Northern Frederick County is different from those very rich agricultural areas around Buckystown and Adamstown, Iamsville, and really other areas uh, that surround Frederick City. Here we're at the toe, literally, of the Appalachian Mountains, and so we have iron ore that's within 12 feet of the surface. It's very close to the surface. Iron has to be mined, so the closer it is to the surface, the easier it is to get to. And it was a very hot commodity. Think about every nail, every horseshoe, every stove, every hinge, you know, every knob, every shovel. These things were all made of iron. Europe, particularly England, our, our mother country, was desperate for our iron before the revolution. They needed it, we had it, and it was a way to make a lot of money and incredibly valuable commodity. So that's why Catoctin Furnace is here, to produce iron. So it was mined, but then it was, as you mentioned, created into this whole myriad of things that I'm looking at in the museum component of the site. We have things like wagon axles, wheels, of course, hinges, spikes, railroad rail, doors, andirons, stoves, firebacks. We have things that we don't know what they are, so we ask people to help us crowdsource identification. Some of our objects, we have pig iron, which was the commodity that, say you were a blacksmith, you would get a pig, you would take it to your blacksmith shop, and then you would use it and re use it and make horseshoes and other utilitarian objects. So we had the whole range of iron from pig iron to to very beautifully finished objects like our jam stove plates and our nine and ten plate stoves. So again, very utilitarian and very decorative things. Hundreds of them are here in the museum, including some items that were used here as well as made here. You mentioned earlier that this is a museum that is full of beautiful things and interesting objects to look at, but it really is about people. Well, the the history of Catoctin Furnace when the Bicentennial was being commemorated was largely recognized as European-American. And that's because, uh, or one of the reasons, is because the descendants of those immigrant workers are by and large still here. Their descendants are still here in the village, which is really fabulous that we have 
a population that is multi-generational, that has taken care of these worker houses and has a very deep history here. But those individuals replaced an earlier workforce that was here prior to the revolution, during the revolution when the furnace was being constructed, the furnace that we think of today, and then continued to be in residence, obviously against their will because they were enslaved, through probably the 1840s. The population was the largest African-American enslaved population in Frederick County. They were highly skilled. We know colliers, forgemen. They took care of not only operating the furnace, but also the agrarian skills of husbandry, animal husbandry, taking care of crops, working in the vineyard, working in the houses of the ironmaster. They were the workforce. So we can assume without any stretch in the imagination that the building that we're sitting in, which is the Museum of the Iron Worker, was constructed with the hands of enslaved individuals. I think it's really important to just say one more time that these were highly skilled people. These were people who were brought here completely against their will, but they brought with them skills. And we, one of the things we talk about at the museum is that knowledge transfer from Africa. Africa had so much history, but also a very rich history in iron making throughout the continent. And these European owners, they were able to take advantage, uh, or they did take advantage of that skill set that uh, enslaved brought and then made, frankly, an enormous amount of money off of it. The, the village is ringed by mansions. There are four, three of which are still standing in excellent condition, one of which is in ruins. That's the Ironmaster's mansion. But the other three mansions that ring the village, they would have been at home in Annapolis or Philadelphia or New York in the first years of the 19th century. They were built from about 1770 through about 1815, and they are a testament to the wealth that was created here. I earlier was looking at the two reconstructions of the enslaved worker faces that uh, came from the skeletal remains that were, were here. How did that come about? Well, that goes back to the construction of the second lane of Route 15. When that roadway expansion was planned in the late 1960s, luckily it came just after the passing of the Historic Preservation Act of 1966, which created the situation in which when federal monies or public monies are being used, the effect of that undertaking on archaeological and historical resources must be considered. In that sort of um, process, an archaeological phase one investigation was undertaken, and the archaeologists found that there was a cemetery in the pathway of what is now the northbound lane of Route 15. So the State Highway Administration recognized that and they then conducted or had an archeological company conduct what's known as a mitigation. So that excavation uncovered 35 graves and immediately the archeologists realized that the individuals in these graves were of African ancestry. And so they contacted the forensic anthropologist at the Smithsonian, Lawrence Angel, 
and took the skeletal remains to the Smithsonian, and they have been taken care of, curated by the Smithsonian ever since. About eight years ago, when we began to reanalyze Catoctin Furnace and reanalyze the, the history of the, of the furnace, we sought a grant to create a forensic facial reconstruction. And in this case, we were able to do two forensic facial reconstructions. One is a 15-year-old boy, and one is a 35, 32, 35-year-old mother. And those two forensic facial reconstructions are in the museum. And these are done in such a way that if these individuals' friends or relatives walked through the door, theoretically, they would be able to recognize them. That's how exacting the measurements and the recreation of their facial features are, the eyes, the nose, chin, mouth, forehead. So we thought that this was a way to demonstrate to people not just that the African-American population was here, but make it a very immediate experience to be able to walk in and see these people. They're not numbers, they're not, you know, we have no idea what their names are, but we can see them for who they were, enslaved Africans who lived in Catoctin Furnace in, in the cemetery. They're beautiful, and as you said, they're so very lifelike and detailed, but these individuals particularly are exemplary of the hard life that the enslaved workers experienced. Well, they, they are, and that's a, that's a really good point because before we undertook the forensic facial reconstructions and found the grant that would fund that, we also reanalyzed forensic anthropologists reanalyzed the the individuals and the purpose of that was to sort of be able to tell their life story in a more complete way. Part of that was looking at the bones. For instance, the young man, he's only about 15 years old, his spine is already compressed, which means that he was subjected to incredibly hard labor and probably incredibly hard and repetitive labor so that had he lived to be an adult he probably would have bent bent double and we do have an individual an older gentleman in the cemetery who is bent double he would have uh, not been able to straighten up his back in the last decades of his life at all and so this young man was well on the path even at the age of 15 which is sort of it's unbelievable but of course it's the reality of enslavement and he not only was his spine completely impressed, but he died at the age of 15. Now, there's no parent, he wasn't in an accident, he doesn't have any broken bones or any trauma that would indicate his cause of death at that young age. But, you know, if you're 15 years old and you're a young man, you know, you're kind of in the prime of your life. You're neither older or very young when you're more susceptible to, to death. He shouldn't have been dying at the age of 15, but probably he was worn down overworked, obviously, and without proper nutrition. And so when you get run down, you're, you're less able to fight off an infection or an illness, a virus. Your, your defenses are down. So while we do not know what caused his death, we can suspect, given his compressed spine, that he was very much worn down and worn out and then possibly just became ill. And instead of bouncing back, like a healthy 15-year-old would be able to do 
he he died and the mother died very very likely in childbirth because her infant who lived for a few more months at the most is buried just above her so it's very very likely that she died in childbirth and then her her son died shortly thereafter so stories that really illustrate what the history was all about. You could spend a lot of time in this space learning the history of this area as well as the furnace, but this isn't everything to be seen at the site, is it? No, it isn't. Most visitors begin the Rizda Catoctin Furnace at the ruins of the Isabel Furnace, which is where the furnace parking lot and the Ironmaster's Mansion are at 12698 uh, Catoctin Furnace Road, if you put it in your, your GPS. But it's a large parking lot that is beside the Isabella Furnace. And from there, there is a walkway, which is the African American Cemetery Interpretive Trail. Uh, it's a self-guided path with uh, waysides that tell the history of the furnace and tell the history of the African-American population, the industry, and it goes through the woods to an overlook as close as you can get, but not inside the cemetery. So you can stop, and it is a contemplative space, and then the path brings you back to the Museum of the Iron Workers. So that's where most people begin their visit, and then they walk the path, come to the Museum of the Iron Worker, look at the museum, and then go back up to the parking lot. But you can also stop at the Episcopal Church which is always open for visitors. You can walk to the Log House, which is just across uh, Catoctin Furnace Road. Uh, that's where our historic kitchen garden is. And you can just walk through the village and see some of the other historic houses. So a few times a year, there are living history interpreters here. Tell us a little bit about those folks and what they do. We're open every weekend on Saturday and Sunday from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. And in the summer, we are hoping that those hours will be extended. So check our website. But we are absolutely open every weekend. You can count on that. And then we have special events throughout the year that are living history events and special events that allow you to kind of have a deeper dive into the history of the village. The next one is the Maryland Iron Festival, May 21-22. It's a Saturday and Sunday event from 10 to 5. And during that, we'll be pouring iron, actually pouring iron. And we will be casting. Uh, there'll be blacksmithing, of course. We'll be log hewing because a lot of the buildings were built of logs. Some are stone, some are log. There'll be food trucks and music, just all kinds of, of wonderful, including some fun games like a cannonball toss and an anvil lifting. <laughs> so that's May 21-22. And then we have a special event in fall called Fall Fest, which coincides with the very famous Color Fest in Thermont. And that has crafts as well as apple butter boiling, which we do the traditional Catoctin Furnace way. And we make it and sell it and then a lot of other you know again children's activities tours um, and that sort of thing spirits of the furnace is in october it's always two weekends before halloween it's on a saturday evening it's a guided walk through the village at night by lantern light in which you meet some of the people who lived here it's not scary but it's very informative of the history so you'll meet a miner and uh, you'll meet an iron master you'll meet some of the enslaved workers. So that's Spirits of the Furnace. And then the holiday season, we have traditional village Christmas, which is always the first Saturday of December. And that is, as it is billed, a traditional village Christmas with a visit from Belschnickel, who's a German-Austrian 
precursor, if you will, of Santa that we know was here in the village. And he meets with the children, has them recite a Bible verse, which is traditional, but basically he scares them a little bit. And finally, going back to the first part of the year, we have In Their Own Voices, which is our Black History Month event every February, the last week in February. And it is an opportunity for our partners at Silver Oak Academy to serve a traditional luncheon of African-American inspired cuisine. And then it's a living, living history program as well. So those are our special events that occur throughout the year. Thank you so much for being with us today on Finding Frederick. Well, thank you. This was a pleasure. It really was. I really appreciate the time. My many thanks to my guest, Elizabeth Comer. For more information about the Catoctin Furnace and the Museum of the Iron Worker, as well as details that can help you plan your trip, visit CatoctinFurnace.org. That's all for today's episode. Thanks to you for coming along with me to Finding Frederick. I'm Lisa Littlefield. See you next week.